Welcome everybody to back to the SAS Rent podcast. I'm your host. We'll go with we'll go with my name is Podcast Pete. They used to call me that in a past life for the past podcast. So we'll go with that one again. And with me today is special guest Paula Cordovez Saraceda, and she's here from Unit 21. But we'll get back into it like all one step at a time. I promised I'd break these questions down. So welcome, Paula. Hi, Pete. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be chatting with you. Thanks so much for coming on. We've had some chats before, so this is not like the inaugural. So like definitely just being like, hey, let's record the next conversation we have. All right. So let's bring everybody up to speed then, because I'm going to act like everybody already knows this. Paula, who do you work for? Great question. <laughs> I work for a company called Unit 21, and I've been here for, I guess it's been like a year and a couple months at this point. Okay. Okay. Awesome. And then, yeah, mention Unit 21, website being unit21.ai. What do you guys do? We are a no-code tool, and we enable organizations to make data-driven decisions. What that really means is we operate in the financial crimes or financial environment. We have a lot of customers that use us for both fraud and compliance, and it's really basically workflows that allow you to identify suspicious activity. When I, what I mean when I say no-code is I don't like thinking about this, and I do not, do not like saying it out loud, but the fraud environment moves incredibly fast. And criminal organizations are smarter than we want to think they are. And what you ultimately need is tools that adapt as fast as organizations like these adapt. So we have a basically set of tools that allow you to build your own workflows of what is suspicious for you at each point in time. And how do you best iterate on it to find new types of financial crime as you move forward? And I talk about financial space, but ultimately we operate in the environment of movements of people and movements of movement of assets. So anything that has people or transactions has a use case where we could fit in from retail to social media to everything in between. So it's a very exciting and fast-growing space. Yes, that certainly, certainly would be. Okay, okay, very, very cool on that one. Definitely, definitely something to come back to. Okay, so what do you do for them there then? I am the head of customer engagement. I basically oversee the entire post-sales organization. There's different teams within my org. We look specifically at implementation success and support. So it's the different teams that support the customer throughout the journey. After you close the deal, once you start using the tool, what type parts of the lifecycle do, do you go through and how do we best support you through it? Just to go very, very quickly through them, implementation is a time-bound project. It's basically getting you set up, up and running on our tool, saying data configuration, mapping, permissioning, and so on and so forth. The success team really manages the start to finish or the entire journey of the customer. Everything from strategic alignment, business reviews, what do you care about? How do we think about the future? to how do you optimize your processes and work with your teams to get them better set up and smarter on identifying financial crimes. And then we also have a support team that really focuses on both solving queries as they come up and educating customers on how to solve things themselves. Within these teams, we also have an education specialist who focuses on our scaled content and it's both used internally for training and externally for our customer base. Okay, okay, that's awesome. And you oversee all of these teams. I correct. There are directors who have direct reports and those directors report into me. So I'm really in charge of the strategy for a customer base. Okay. Post-sale. And, and this is strictly post-sale. Is that right? No pre-sales motion, no freemium, no like. Correct. Okay. okay. No freemium, no pre-sales motion. We do work very closely with sales and we are part of the sales process kind of indirectly because we want to make sure we have a solutions engineering team that really ensures that whatever's coming down the pipeline, we are set up to support. So we are in conversations where we're what's being closed, what's being worked on, but we really kick full gear once a contract closes. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. 
Okay. Then, then I, I've made mention before, and I just, you know, for the sake of the audience, we do find that there's interesting journeys leading into both enablement, which I said in enablement, and customer success. So love to know about your journey to customer success. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I always say that to whoever looking at my LinkedIn, my journey may make no sense. I actually really do believe it makes complete sense. I've been in tech for three years. I've been in success for three years. Really, my background is in public policy and economic development. I have a master's in public policy. For a long time, I worked in multilateral institutions. My past jobs have things like working with the UN on creating training programs for the employees around the world, all the way to when I was with the World Bank and I was managing fiscal policy projects in the Middle East and West Africa. What I realized when I was in, in development was that the work that I was doing, the work itself was very interesting, but I, it wasn't moving as fast as I wanted to be moving. And I was really missing that challenge that comes with, I now know, startups. Working in this very fast-paced environment where you're having to basically learn really fast and create processes. But what I was doing was actually success. It was identifying needs people have, having conversations, negotiating, convincing people or showing the value of adopting something that you were trying to do. In the World Bank, it was, again, fiscal policy projects. At the UN, it was adopting training programs and then basically allowing them to use them effectively or onboard successfully and then add more value to, to the teams moving forward. Around 2018, I made a decision to change the tech. I was specifically looking at startups because what I wanted from what I had heard from friends in the industry was that it's the place where you go really to build things from scratch, create processes and learn a lot. And I really struggled to understand where I fit in. I would, I remember having chats with recruiters who would say things like, your background's so interesting. We don't really know where you fit in. And I spent a lot of time looking at jobs. Every time I read a CSM job, my immediate response was, I've done all those things. They're just said in different words because in the development world, you speak about those things differently. But the actual skill set was exactly what I had. And really what drives me to work is people. It's helping people be more efficient, helping things be more successful. So it just seemed to me like an easy transition. And I joined Airtable three years ago as a CSM. I was one of the, I think we were less than 10 CSMs when I joined. Now they have 50 plus. So it's so interesting. Okay. So in your background, like, I mean, first of all, let's like unpack that just for a minute. The summary is you went in World Bank beforehand. And so World Bank, you know, was in the financial sector, things like that. So there is a, there is a corollary there, but it is a, it is a left turn. It's often a left turn. So let me take it all the way back then, because you have even more education that you may or may not use than I do. So is it two master's degrees for you? Was that it? Was that what I saw? I have two master's degrees, one in project management and one in public policy. That's correct. Okay. So project management, always going to get to use, I suppose. T just tell me about those. Like, cause like tech is such a different thing. Like you end up with these folks who've like, Hey, like maybe they went to college, maybe they didn't, but they started their business in college. If they, you know, these are the, the big ones anyway, the Elon Musk that just jumped straight out and then Steve Jobs like, Oh yeah, read college. That's, that's, that's good. One semester, I'll be fine. And then they have this huge boom before 30 selling their first business and everything like that. And it doesn't have much to do with it. So did, are you getting, are they, are you getting use from that? Like, like direct one-to-one -one linkage to your educational background? I, I do think I really am. And let me walk you a little bit through how those two happened. So my master's in public policy was very much aligned with the career I wanted to have back then. I wanted to be a diplomat. I actually was a diplomat for a while working for the World Bank and the UN, like we discussed. And wh where I see my trajectory going was in something in the public international sector. Public policy was a degree that made the most sense for that. And really public policy is a degree that adds a lot of value in terms of soft skills, right? It really allowed me to talk to anyone around the world. 
be able to have right con- the right conversations, be able to get points across, be able to negotiate, convince people, like I've said before, already add value. So I really think that when I think about the hard skills of the role, those may not be as applied, but everything around interacting with people and having the right conversations isn't something that I use all the time. And I can tell you that a lot of people who went to grad school with me took into the courses I did would say similar things. So many of our classes were really just around people. When I decided to change to tech and I started interviewing, I really started more like testing the waters. And I would talk to recruiters and I already mentioned this, but they would say things like, your background is so interesting, but we do not know what you do or how this fits in. And I realized that I had the skill set, but translating the skill set was very, very difficult. And even though I had some of the skill set, it's so different, Pete, working for a multilateral agency. What I kind of imagine is it's like working in like really big tech companies. Then he was working in a startup. So questions they typically had was as simple as, do you know what agile is? How do you manage processes or, or projects? How do you work on time-bound things? So they're all things that we all do in some way or the other, but it didn't really have the framework. So the, the project management degree really came as a result of, mm. I wanted to be really prepared to work in the tech industry and know that I was sure learning as I went, but also had some of that foundation that I felt like I was lacking. So I actually started doing a pro- my, my master's in project, sorry, in project management. At the same time, I was interviewing and then completed it while working in tech already. Okay. 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 Man. So, okay. So that's very, very interesting. So you did get to leverage some of those skills and like, you've got a couple of those moved into them. And then you actually, you, you knew you wanted to go to tech and you snagged that master's degree, like in, in, in route, I guess. Correct. I was working full-time during the day and I was taking classes online in the afternoons and then on weekends. So it was quite a lift, but I really do think it was A, what I needed to do and B, it made me so much more certain of what I was doing. I do think that everyone gets imposter syndrome in some way or the other. And knowing that I was learning things that I could then directly apply to my job, everything from talking to engineers about agile processes and understanding language that I had never, never used in the past, it came in so handy. It was a lift, but I think it was the right one. And I do not regret it at all. What about the, what about living in Bay Area? So you're in Bay Area now. Is that correct? Just make sure. I am correct. Okay. And then, and then, but when I picture, when I picture public policy, I think of DC. When I picture financial services, I think of New York, you know, like as far as the United States goes. So were you living somewhere else or were you always in the Bay Area? No, I was actually in DC. I relocated back in 2019 for Airtable. I actually was born and raised in Ecuador. I moved to the U.S. in 2012, August 2012, my anniversary uh, in the in the country's coming up. Years. <laughs> and I I lived for a long time between DC and Boston. So working DC, grad school in Boston, and then I had when I was with the UN, I was in and out of New York often. I moved back. To, I moved to the Bay Area in 2019, and it's it was a very big change. It was also kind of scary because. Having lived on the East Coast for a long time, you hear how different people are on both coasts. I think the initial getting used to the environment was interesting. The first thing I did was realize I no longer needed pantsuits. I actually remember walking into my interview at at Airtable in like a pantsuit and everyone was in the casual tech jeans and like a sweatshirt outfit. And I just remember feeling so overdressed. I was convinced they were all thinking I was insane. Um, that was the first thing I dropped. I changed. I moved my wardrobe. I'm, I'm did relaxed, did you I, drop it? Did you drop it, or did somebody tell you we don't no, wear a uniform here and like and tell you that we have this other thing that's actually a uniform as, as well? It's just a casual uniform. <laughs> no one really said anything, but the contrast was obvious. And also, working in development, there's so much that goes into looking super profi- like super corporate professional. There's such a calmness that comes from just knowing that I worry about everyday clothes and I just do really good work. 
Yeah. So I did it myself. It took me like a week and I was like, no more pants. It's great. <laughs> I do not want to wear them again. Nice. Nice. Okay. Okay. So, and then, but you moved because Airtable said like, hey, come out here, come to the headquarters. And, and this is how. They had, they had two offices, one in New York, one in SF. I think the New York one back then was tiny. It must have been like 10, 12 people. I wanted to be in the Bay Area. I figured that if I wanted to learn about the tech environment, being at the center of it all was what made the most sense. And I made it more of a conscious time bound. If it's not the place for me, I will move back to the East Coast. But I've been here for three years and I have no intention of leaving okay. right now. I have a, a friend who moved from, from the East Coast and in, in, in a Chattanooga's got the world's fastest internet. That's where I'm here at now. But like, but it's not, it's not, it's not Bay Area at all. It's not Austin, Texas either. It's got a little startup scene that's a fantastic little startup scene. But anyway, he made a commitment to technology by moving to Mountain View, moving to Bay Area. And so, and like he went from a year where he had 15,000 in sales to a year where he had 1.7 million in sales in about two years. And I just feel like some of that was the commitment, not that you, he was in the Bay Area itself, but just that he was felt that strongly about it. So I was kind of like seeing like, is that some one of the pieces like in this intentional journey that you've created? of moving actually out to the Bay Area, which it sounds like it it somewhat was. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely was. And, and the piece of advice that I've given to people who have asked me about moving to tech really is go where the action is. You can always relocate if you don't like it. You can always relocate when the time is right. But it's not even just about like, I moved here for Airtable and it's not even just about being here to work for Airtable. It's the environment you're exposed to. It's conversations you get to have. It's meeting people from all these different industries. It's learning things I never learned before. And even talking to my parents, for example, it's even sharing stories like the first time I saw a self-driving car driving past me. And I had this moment of like, I felt like I was in DC when the presidential motorcade would go by, right? Like, wow, this is exactly what I was expecting to see. And it's so interesting. So the learning opportunities that come from just being where the action is, I, I don't doubt you can maybe learn them elsewhere, but it's not going to be as fast as it will be in San Francisco or in the Bay Area. Yeah, kind of like immersion, like it's actually happening. It's, it's interesting to go back a little bit like, and do that because like everybody's remote now and maybe it's trickling back in, but it's still such a remote world. But I do have one more question because you could actually give a pre and post from like just then and being new in a sector to now. Like your, your onboarding, your personal onboarding journey, then being in an office, how, how different do you think it would be starting a new job, new, new technology sector, everything, if they said, didn't say, Hey, come to the Bay area. And they didn't say, Hey, come to the office. Like wh what would that journey look like versus what it was in 2018? Yeah, I will start by saying that I'm a huge fan of remote work and I really enjoy being able to work from wherever I want right now, but Going back to value, the value that you get from being in the place, you cannot get when you're remote. I remember sitting in the office my first week. I remember I had a sales person across from me, one of the best sales people I've ever worked with, a solutions engineer who's to this day one of my close friends to my right, and then CSMs on my sites, basically. The mental learning I would just do from sitting there quietly and listening to the conversations, everything from negotiations, difficult conversations, you don't get that, really. And yeah, we have tools that allow you to record conversations and listen to them, but it would help off the phone and I would just turn to them and say, hey, can you walk me through why you asked this and not that? Or can you explain to me why, like, how you expect them to respond differently or what would you have done differently? There's a level of learning that just comes from that kind of, not just exposure to your own role, but cross-functional exposure that you don't really get yes. as easily when you're not in an office environment that I don't yet know how we can replace being remote. So 
Yeah, I mean, I, I did onboard into my second job, the job I currently have a unit to one remotely, and I thought the onboarding was really smooth, but you do miss out on those kind of natural, organic learning opportunities, or even just building that trust with your peers week one, where when you're remote, it just takes so much more time. 100%. Yeah. I had a manager who wisely, our onboarding, our new hire ramp was was truly that he would just rearrange the desks. He'd be like, new pods, new people, new pods. And that was my first enablement job was when I would get put near all the new people every single time until I was like, hey, is this a job unto itself? Is it? Let's be real. You know, like. <laughs> and, 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 and speaking of even more to that, when during the time I was at Airtable, I think we changed desk configurations maybe three times. And it was based on the company was growing really fast. We had like to just space or teams were basically moving to other parts of the floor that we had. Same, same concept, right? Like every time I switched a desk, I was exposed to new people that I hadn't talked to before, maybe wasn't as close to. And I was just learning from how they were doing things. Yeah. Everything from how do you work with different kinds of people who have different work, work um, preferences or different ways of being in the office to, again, overhearing conversations where I was like, oh, I love how that was framed. I'm going to use that for myself. I, I, I always say this, but when you look at how I am as a CSM and how I talk to customers, I really do believe I just took what I heard from the best CSMs that I know and made it my own. So it's what Emily used to say to customers when she talked about the tool and what Michelle used to say to customers when she would have to convince them of adopting something new that we really believed could make a difference for them. And I just made them part of my own spiel, basically. Totally. Yeah, it's a great, great way to do it. I love that. I do miss that from time to time. Just definitely do. Although, like, take advantage of what you can. So many pros and cons. It's a different podcast, but I, I always have to ask. <laughs> so, to okay, obviously interesting background. And then you're at Airtable and Unit 21 now. What's the what's the journey in between? And there's different roles there, too. Certainly different roles. You're in leadership position now. That was a customer success management position. So. Correct. I joined Airtable as a CSM. It was my first job in tech. And I always say that Airtable was kind of like a boot camp for CS because I was there, I, I believe I was around the seventh employee and I left by the time they were around 250. So I not just saw the growth in the company, but different customer sizes, having a bigger book of business, working with more complex international customers. I was a CSM for two years. I love my job. I, to this day, think that for starting my career in CS, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. Unit 21, however, very immediately when we started having conversations, became a leadership opportunity. And you and I have talked about this in the past. When I when I joined Airtable, I was around the 70th hire. There were all these people before me that had the good old days stories of yeah. first days in tech, taking calls in a stairwell and like fun, kind of scrappy, having to build things as you went. I really wanted that. And when I joined Airtable, I said that the next time I changed companies was going to be to a company that was as smaller size so I could be part of it. You know, Tom reach out. We started chatting a, a bit over a year ago. And really what I tried to make sure it was a combination of the product, the leadership, the people that I met, and then knowing that the scope of my role will really be building everything again from scratch. Like I was going to be part of, not just being part of the good old days, but I was going to be building the good old days. And that I don't think is something that comes often in a company that you believe in so much. And I do think that when you have the opportunity, you take it. Okay. Okay, cool. So now, now that I know... So, cause you know, I got the, I got the degrees, I was a teacher and things like that. A lot of these things are intentional, but then, and so since you are the same way, did you, did you, is there a funding round where you like, Hey, I need them to be pre-seed post series A approaching series B. Was there a thing you were looking at or was it truly like they reached out and you're like, Oh, that's an interesting opportunity. Tell me more. Do you have stairwells crowded with people? Like, was it just like based <laughs> on this kind of like dream that you had or was it, were there, were there milestones you were actually looking for? 
Yeah, I was looking for, I mean, a lot of different things. First, and I, I already talked about this really briefly, but I'm not American. So as a non-American, thinking about funding rounds, it's extremely important, not just because it comes down to financial stability, but also because you're looking at viability to stay in the country, right? When you're working with different visas, you want to make sure that you can be part of a place where it's not just a belief in the company, but also a belief that they will be around in two, four, six years, right? right? I was looking at kind of looking at opportunities here and there, and I wasn't really considering anywhere. I wasn't sure I saw the impact of the product or didn't see that it's critical enough that I was convinced it could have a long lasting like impact in the right. world or in the world itself. I w decided to narrow it down to series E, series, series A, series B, pre-seed, especially for people in a visa can be a little bit risky. I do think it can be really high reward, but I wasn't yet ready to make that big change. So I was looking at series A, series B. Funny enough, I signed unit to one as a series A and I started the day after they closed their series B. So uh, I was wow. kind of perfectly in between. I was also looking at places where I would want to work with people around me. And I, I, I know a lot of people think about this, but I do believe that regardless of how fantastic your job is, you will always have days where you do not want to do it, where it's really hard, where you're exhausted, where the amount of things you have to do feel very stressful. And what really gets you going is, am I working with the best people that I have around me to really solve problems? And where we not just care about each other and like each other, but know we're doing our best work. So there's a level of accountability that I was looking for. So as I was interviewing my companies, I would always ask to be put in contact with employees and just get there. How do you feel? What are your, what is your experience? What will you change about it? And I was also looking again for leadership I could believe in and investors I could believe in. So are people that I really respect taking a bet on this company that makes me believe that they know what they're doing and this may be a, a leap worth taking. That's interesting too. This is the second time I've actually heard that, that piece, like uh, somebody ended up at Postman and I said, Hey, like new hire. Great. How, how'd you end up here? He goes, actually, I went to this specific venture capital firm's website and I pinged 10 of these companies. Postman was one of them. I was like, Oh, that's actually really smart. He's like, cause I, that's the one I respect the most of any of them. So anytime they put that many millions at risk, I say, that's my bet. And I'm like, Oh, it's like the real estate thing where these people are plunking down like, I will buy anything in a one mile radius of a Starbucks. They have done all of their research. I will buy a home there. So, or whatever. And so that's, that's super interesting. Do you want to shout out any VCs right now? Is there something that you're like particularly interested in, or you're like, Hey, that's a, that's a very noteworthy, respectful or respectable institution. Well, one of our main investors is Tiger Global and I'm a huge fan oh. of Tiger Global. It was one of the names that immediately made me be like, this is probably something worth looking at. But really my advice for people here is that look at what you believe in and what kind of people you believe in, like whatever VC person leader that is, they're probably making really smart decisions. And I'm not saying you need to follow those decisions, but I do use those to inform what I'm doing. Truly, truly doing it day in and day out. Like it's a business for them and obviously putting things at risk based on their decisions. So yeah, that's cool. Okay. So VCs like Tiger Global and others only, only give money because, and when they do, especially at a series B funny, I've noticed this over and over. It's like, it's almost the crux of Saturant podcast. It's like, Hey, product adoption is here. You get a series B given to you. And it's almost like, I mean, the product is proven now go scale the people product process. And, and so that's where oftentimes you'll, you'll drop in the customer success leader, another sales leader, and it's off to the races. So would you give us the context for like hyper growth at unit 21? Like what's happening there? How fast is it going? Is it, is it on this, is it a 50% year over year? 
headcount, ARR type ascent, uh, 100%. Like, what is it? What's happening over there with y'all? Yeah, we are growing incredibly fast. When I joined, I believe I signed when there were about 28 people. I joined when there were about 35 people and there were 140. I've only been here for a bit over a year and a month. So the the growth in headcount has been insane. Actually, when I joined, we had just signed the lease in our new office and the office had so much space. And I remember thinking, wow, this is massive. When the whole company's here now, we do not fit in. Like that's, it's insane to think about. We've basically outgrown an office in the span of a year. In terms of revenue, last year, I believe with 3X in revenue, we're expecting the same kind of growth for this year. And it's really not just paid a headcount and revenue growth. It's everything. Processes that we had a year ago look entirely different now. We build, we build the first customer health score when I joined. Now we're in our third iteration, the more we learn, right? So it's really around seeing how the work was back then and how the work is now. And even though I, even though I know we're still in this growth stage, it's miles apart. How much better and faster you get at doing things as you scale. Mm. Yeah, that is unbelievable. So like 30 to 140 employees in a year, 3x revenue, and then processes like these processes, how fast they turn over. People like to look at things on a quarterly basis. Even in the in this like new hire ramp team that we have put together, uh, we, we serve about 20 teams with the new hire ramp team. So we have a monthly maintenance and improvement cadence with a Slack channel tied to each team that they asynchronously put in their maintenance requests. And we have a backstop every month to come to get with them, gather additional contact. And make sure we've made those updates and changes. And we don't put people's like names and things like we do all the best practices to make sure that it will actually last a quarter. And it never does. It lasts a month. And so like that's the the update. And that's just on like new hire pieces and the things that we're trying to operationalize that have already been created. So we have another team that creates them. So, yes, just sitting on those front lines and understanding. Plus, you're having the conversation with customers. So. You're needing to create these and update these because otherwise your next conversation is with another human being who's been invested in you. And so you want to make sure that that's correct as well. Um, what's the level of, of pressure there? Like, like how, how's that work? I know you sought it out, but like, what are the challenges that kind of come with some of that hyper growth? Yeah. Working in a hyper growth company, I think it's incredibly rewarding. It's also incredibly stressful and I'm n- never going to sugarcoat that. I do not think hypergrowth startups are for everyone. I think the level of stress, the level of ownership you have to take, the level of um, growth mindset that you need to always have, and also the level of just knowing how to manage with things as they come. There's never two problems that are the same. All problems are priority, and everything's happening at the same time. Yeah, I mean, the, the way I really think about Unit 21 is I have had to really learn. I already said this, Airtable was like a bootcamp for CS. Unit one has been a bootcamp for making decisions because when you have 17,000 things to do at any point in time and they're all important, which one is more important than the others? I've had to learn a lot about how to lead people and make decisions and have difficult conversations. That's all part really of the job. So I do think that being making a decision to join a company like this is understanding that some days will be very difficult. But when you solve problems and you look back and you say, wow, we did that, that's incredibly rewarding. And I don't think a lot of companies really have that. We went through this insane process and everything was better in the end. Everything that we're looking at since I joined has been everything from what roles do we need, right? Roles that we didn't know we needed. For a bit of context, when I joined Pete, the success org, or the customer engagement org was actually just success and support. And success, CSMs were actually doing implementation. As we started growing, we split it apart into implementation and success, right? It's a 10-bound team that is focused on right, getting customers set up. And then a team that focuses on strategy. As we started seeing customers grow on user platform, we started realizing that we also needed tooling internally to make decisions, mm-hmm. right? 
we used to be able to, uh, we used to just have conversations that we still do with every single customer where you think about what do they need, right? When you're a smaller company, you do have this tendency to build everything a customer wants. Mm. As we're scaling, we hard, hard to start thinking about what is our relationship between success and product? How do we make the best decisions that we can? And what are things that we do need for a roadmap about our continued growth? And what are things that are just about recent in conversations or the incorrect fit at the time? We've done everything from new BI tools. Now I'm able to take a look at customer behavior on the platform and we really, really use that to inform what makes a good customer and on the inverse, what makes a bad customer? Like what is a poor utilization of our platform? So if I see signs of physical kind of potential behavior, we can take action about them. I could talk about this for ages, but ultimately being in a role like this really is about being able to pick up on the signs and make decisions when you do not have all the information in front of you. So you're kind of making an educated guess on what is the best thing we can be doing right now. Sure. Okay. So like the roles needed to like continue progress forward. I have seen that, you know, your friend in mine, my boss, Sanjeev yeah. Sassodia. So he's has currently 110 direct reports, not direct. I should, I shouldn't put it like that, but there's, there's but a, in his org. 14, 14. I'm one of his 14 direct reports and then 110 come complete there so sp spanning out roles all the time spinning them up finding the right leaders hiring recruiting ramping and then tooling needed i brought on three tools he he, he said thumbs up to three tools last last year like last year alone it's just like we're gonna need content management system learning management system and a call recording so so those are those are in and implement i'm one one of his 14 everybody got tooling so that's a that's just a massive piece and then, and then product design. So that whole voice of the customer piece, like that whole thing of like, not only like hearing what they say, but also interpreting it into the product roadmap. And that runs through customer success. It's so, it's so unbelievable. Like the, the, the breadth of customer success is what just boggles my mind because with sales, like sales is like, there's, there's so much pressure there. There's black, there's white. Like, did you make your number, whether it's monthly or quarterly, it's, it, you know, did the deal come through? Like it, it may just roll into the next week, but that wasn't good enough. And there's, there's obvious pressures there, like live by the sword, die by the sword kind of mentality. And then customer success, there's everything else. And it just all rolls and bleeds over into that. You have to have such range to be able to execute that appropriately. And so, um, Anywhere, that's where those challenges just seem to like grow and grow and grow. Yeah. Top challenge, and let, I guess we're gonna have to give this like a time frame. Like I'm trying to think of like, cause it, it goes so quickly as we've already noted. What's top challenge that you see? What's top challenge in the coming quarter? How about that? Thinking of Q3, if you're on a normal fiscal year, starting next month, what's top challenge? Yeah, really good question. Cause I also think PD and I have talked about this a lot in our other conversations. But really we're at this point where we know how people operate. We understand output. We know what's needed. Well, we we know what's needed externally. What we need to do now is determine what's needed internally. So we're definitely hiring. We have been hiring fast for the past year. We're currently in the process of rethinking what roles we need. But as part of that rethinking, there's also the conversation of what does it take to make someone successful in this company and to make sure that they have all the context that they need to be able to do their jobs well. I don't think that everyone really thinks about the concept of enablement in itself, but... or basically at what point the company to bring in enablement, but right now to me is incredibly important. We've already, we're already talking about this before our conversation, right? But I'm really looking at how do I serve customers more effectively without having to use the same number of resources that I currently am. We brought in an education specialist a few months ago to really help us ramp that up. Now we're looking at, do we need an LMS? At what point do we move to a scaled approach to learning so customers can get all the information that they want? And internally, I actually think it's more important because I'm putting people in front of customers who are dealing with actual 
human beings and their processes and their value. And I need them to, I need to know that they're as prepared for these conversations as they can. So really top of mind for me right now is with my current resources, how do I make them as efficient as I can by bringing the right enabling folks to onboard, train on new product launches, ensure that we can answer all questions that we're not just product experts, but we are understand industry changes. So that's really where a lot of my time is currently going. So this, uh, what you're talking about, oh, it warms my heart, you know, like that's my, that's my, that's my, that's my all day, every day. But it really does take a leader who actually understands that, that need and can like, can verbalize it. You know, it's, it's discovery. It's always discovery. So once the, the pain is associated to a problem and it is articulated or written, then it's just like, every, it will happen at that point. It's just kind of operationalizing that. So that's, that's very, very solid. But the, the challenge, because, because at Postman, we had the challenge. There is, there is a specific, there's a function specific outcome to each role that you want to see successful. So, Hey, Not do you have dental, yeah. do you understand how to calendar your time off or whatever, like through the, maybe the eight, like HR or, or do you have your tools provision for you? These are important things in the first week, but they don't go from like day one to job done. It's not doing the outcomes management on the front end, understanding like what things like guide you to success and then backing those in from models in the company, like sitting them next to your Emily's, my Josh's, those people from early days on like virtual calls, like, like being able to have the customer calls recorded and, and, and walked through and things like that. So, but it will happen because that's probably the next step. And it seems to happen somewhere in between B and C, like somewhere in there, it just gets so overwhelming that they go, oh no, let's, let's build this function and figure that out. But with customer success, it's a little different than sales. Like it's just so wide. It's like, what's the priority and order of these? Maybe from enterprise to scale, CS, et cetera, all the way back through. Yeah. I mean, again, Senji has 14 teams. So we just work them one at a time. Rolling up to AU. Yeah. Okay. Even going outside of, oh, one more thing I wanted to add Please. here is even going outside of success specifically, part of the complexity of this is that even though the whole company needs enablement, it's done at different times for different teams, right? So we spend the past quarter building our first couple of iterations of what our onboarding looks like for success implementation and support specifically. Now we're repurposing some of that for the wider company. I took that from conversations with this keep. We're basically using that for new hires. But what we need right now is different enablement that what engineering or product need. I actually can't speak on their behalf, but I do believe that the need for us is a lot more pressing. So I cannot wait for a company-wide initiative to do onboarding. I just need to focus on what do I do for my specific org to be to scale faster? And then how do I repurpose that for the rest of the company? And that's always a trade-off that you're making. Making it's like, do I wait for the whole company or for HR or for people ops to take to basically take the lead on this or take the right time? Or do we start? Do I start doing what I need for my organization? I lean towards a ladder. Part of being in a startup is building processes and being scrappy. We're doing what we can. We'll look for the right people to help us build this. And then it'll be fantastic because once we have something we're more we're proud of, we can repurpose with a wider org. Yeah, and it comes. I, I don't know if it's because of the like the software space, but it's be, it's being agile. It's like how how can you remain agile? How can you work this and create it? And then if there's something you can pass on, you can pass it on. You know, as opposed to the old waterfall structure of like everybody has to get their ducks in a row before we can all at the exact work. same time. Yeah, yeah. It seems if you're like, waiting in a startup for everyone to get their ducks in a row, you're gonna be waiting for a very long time. Ooh, you will be. You will be. Okay. I mainly have to skip to this because like we could go one by one for like the little piece of vision, but I do this. I'm like, oh, it's 25 minutes, 25 minutes. And then I'm like, oh, we're at 36. So uh, not to be overly logistical, but um, 
if you had a tip and let's make it maybe like role specific. So another, another customer success leader could be a manager, could be director, VP, head of what would be a tip or tips that you would recommend for this role in a company such as yours? Cause we'll just have to narrow it down to that scope, I guess. Yeah. The, the tip I'll share or the main thing that comes to mind is something that I actually heard from one of my mentors way back when which is no one really knows everything about a role and you will undoubtedly get imposter syndrome. Surround yourself with smart people that are able to give you the right advice. And I mean, other heads of success, people in cross-functional tendential roles that will have an impact, people that you respect that can give you the right advice. What I do right now is whenever I have to tackle a new problem that I have never tackled in the past, I pick up the phone and I call them. And I say, have you ever encountered X? And then they share their experience and I use it to shape what I'm doing. So you're not expected to know everything. You are expected to be resourceful and find the right people to surround yourself with. So that's a great tip because, and the reason it's great is not because it's like a good soundbite. The reason is because you <laughs> live that tip because anytime that I speak to, like we'll make mention. So like, this is my boss. He is the head of customer success here at Postman, Sanjeev Sisodia. This is a friend of Powell's. And, and so whenever we bring up your name, he's like, she just does. She'll just do it. So like he'll like that is such it's it's good to have the good network and it's good to ask the question, but it's the taking action on whatever you've just heard. Like you operationalize these things within 24 hours. You must have something you do when you write it. You must clear your desk by the end of the day or something like that and like go ahead and plug it on the calendar. Like there's some there's some mechanism you have after you hear these things or just a value you associate it internally that makes you actually take action on those things. And that keeps those people in that network, those smart people like great. I'll tell you more because it's like, it's so like pleasant to see it like carrying forward. So anyway, kudos to you on that one. Cause that's the main thing that we ever say. She's like, yeah, she already did it. She like, she like, she rocked that thing. She's ready for the next. <laughs> I really appreciate that. And the other thing I'll say is if you do have mentors and people that you go out to go with an agenda, just sitting down and saying, I want to pick your brain in general. It's not going to move the needle because I can tell you 17,000 things. I do not know which one of those will be impactful. So when you're taking time of someone who's very busy and has a big job to do, go with a purpose and something you want to take out of your conversation so that you know you're optimizing your time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great tip too. Cause, cause you, you, you too, these people, you very, very busy and like, and, and have so much going on. So it's like, you know, yeah. Which piece do you want to pick? Cause there are other 17 files that are open in their head, the tabs. <laughs> They're all working on other things at the same time. So it's Correct. ADHD at its like most satisfactory, I guess. It was working well. <laughs> okay. So speaking of, thank you so much for your time. Wonderful conversation as always. I'm sure one of many, but we did catch this one on, on a recording. So that's great. We, we did. And I'm glad we did, did Pete. And this was honestly wonderful. So thank you for chatting with me. Thanks, Paula. Thanks, Paula.